Wes Hill. Uh, Wes, tell us uh, it, where, uh, where you're from, uh, your story, uh, and even how you came to faith. Yeah, well, first, can I just say thanks for having me? It's been great uh, great to be here. I, I have not been to Birmingham before. I've not been to the Advent before. I've known about the Advent and your ministry for a long time, so it's a real treat for me to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I grew up in Arkansas, just north of Little Rock, and I, I often begin the story of my faith by saying that my earliest childhood memories are of hearing my parents tell me stories from the Bible. We had these... Um, some of you will know these probably, but there were there, there was a series of children's books called the Arch Books. Uh, there were individual Bible stories. Each each book was an individual Bible story, and they were colorfully designed and rhyming stories. And so my parents had stacks and stacks of these. And uh, you know, I have drawings from when I was three, four, or five years old of uh, images of David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den and things like this. So it was a it was a very Christian childhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I came to faith out of that. I mean, I I never resented that. I was I was loved by my parents, and I think I was sort of loved into the love of Christ wow. in that way. So um, so that's sort of the the story of my faith. And I I I really didn't. I mean, I you know like every kid, I encountered bumps along the way, but I I never really sort of wandered away from that. I knew that God's love in Christ was the most important thing, and. I wanted that to be the center of my life too, and so you know, on through high school into college, I was always very much wanting to be a Christian, you know, wanting to orient my life around Jesus. Uh, so that's that's sort of the news in brief. Yeah. So you went off. You went to Wheaton. I did. College yep. for undergrad. Yep. And then, uh, what did you study at Wheaton? I studied Greek and Hebrew because already by that point I was thinking that I wanted to go to seminary, uh, that I was called to ministry. So I thought, well, I'll get a head start on the languages because they're going to be hard. And they were. Uh, but, <laughs> but, it, but I had a great experience at Wheaton. You did. And so you had already had that idea and um, you, you got a master's from uh, Durham mm-hmm. right? and you got a master's up in Minnesota. That's right. right? And then you went off to Durham, England for... Uh, master's your, degree your and, and PhD. Yeah, PhD. That's right. And what did you what did you do your PhD in it? So I studied Paul's letters and I studied how they relate to the doctrine of the Trinity. So I was sort of doing a project where I was saying if if the doctrine of the Trinity is something we believe flows out of the Bible, then wouldn't it make sense to read the Bible in light of the doctrine of the Trinity? So so I was doing kind of this forward and backward sort of thing and it was great fun. I had a great time in England. Yeah. So, so you majored in Greek and Hebrew, Hebrew and your doctoral studies were great fun. <laughs> I am, in fact, What's a nerdy a academic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I am, in fact, in the right business. Okay, yeah. uh, and, so, and you come back now, you're, you're teaching at Trinity School for Ministry That's right. uh, in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. That's right. Leafy yep. Ambridge. That's right. Uh, right, outside of, uh, right outside Pittsburgh. Yeah. And um, and you're primarily teaching people who will be going into ordained ministry. Right. Yeah. Mo- most of our most of our students are heading into some type of mission work or ministry work, and not all of them are Episcopalians, not all of them are Anglicans. We have a variety of denominations, but they're there because they most of them you know feel called to some form of Christian work. Right. Now, um, most uh, DPhil students in England, when they're finishing up their work, uh, they're they're working pretty hard to get their dissertation published. Um, and yet, your first book uh, that came out, uh, Washed and Waiting, um, came out first. Right. Yeah. And did it feel like when you wrote this book, well, one, what prompted you to write the book? And two, did it feel like you were 
shift it was it a radical shifting of gears mm. to write that book stepping away from Paul and the Trinity for mm. a little bit yeah uh, you know I I tend to write out of a sense of so I'm I'm a big reader in case you didn't know that about me already uh, I I read for fun tons of books but I I am always looking for books that speak to the really deeply felt questions I have. And so I really wanted to read a book that would speak to my experience of being gay. So I talked about growing up in this nurturing Christian family. What I didn't say is that, you know, from about the age 11, 12, 13, I realized that all my sexual attractions, all my sexual desires were for for guys. My, my guy friends were starting to talk about girls they noticed and, you know, awakening to their sexuality as they went through puberty. I was also going through puberty at the same time, but my sexuality was not developing in what I thought of as a normal way. So I was beginning to be attracted to, to my friends as they were beginning to be attracted to girls we knew. And, and I was, I was really completely taken off guard by that. I was confused by it. I didn't, I didn't, um, immediately think of the word homosexuality or, or the concept being gay. I just thought, man, something, something odd is happening with me that I don't really know what's, what's going on here. And, um, you know, it wasn't that my parents or my youth minister, it wasn't that they were overtly shaming. I mean, they weren't saying, you know, gay people are going to hell. That was not the environment I grew up in. But still, even still, I sort of absorbed the idea that this is something I can't talk about. This is something that makes me uh, abnormal. And I think I just want to keep this a secret. And so I, I kind of went, I got to Wheaton, in fact, having kept it a secret from, from everybody. Um, and it wasn't until I was in college that I came out to one of my professors and, you know, counselors and friends and, and family. Um, but but I, I, I wrote this book because... So in the environment I grew up in, a lot of a lot of conservative Christians, you know, taught that look, marriage marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman, and if you're gay, you know, same-sex marriage is is ruled out. And um, ideally, you could get in some kind of counseling or healing ministry or therapy that would allow you to move away from being gay. You could you could have your sexual desires changed. And I, I just never, I mean, I, I prayed for that. I sought that. I met with a counselor who, you know, wanted to, wanted to promote that kind of approach. And it never really made any difference for my sexuality. I mean, I was, I was just as attracted to, to men at, at age, you know, 22 as I was, as I wasn't. (laughs) I wish. (laughs) I wish more the, the hours of agonized prayer and tears I could get back, but, um, so I, I, I was looking for a book. I said, I, I wonder if anybody else has had this experience because all these testimonies I'm hearing. I mean, I remember being at Wheaton and there was a guy who stood up and he showed us a slideshow of, you know, a, this very kind of promiscuous, flamboyantly gay life. And then, and then his final slide was of him, you know, clean shaven and, and married with a wife and three children. And, and this was sort of his before and after story. And I, I felt, you know, that, that's, I don't really identify with either side of that story. I don't have the sort of wild and raucous party scene. I don't have the heterosexual marriage story. So I just don't fit. And what I wanted to read was a book that describes someone like me, someone who knows that they're gay, someone who is also, you know, wanting to live in accord with what, what he believes the Bible teaches. And I just couldn't find a book like that. So I started writing, and you know, it eventually turned into a book, and and it it, it got published during during the time I was doing my doctorate. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about what your decision <clears throat> and what helped lead you to that place where you thought um, I need to to come out. Yeah. And then what does it mean to be a, a gay Christian? Yeah. Yeah. To use that that term. Sure. 
Well, I so I was in college, and um, I still had not told anybody about my sexuality. And I, insofar as I can remember my own thought processes, I thought I'm just going to try to to date women, and I'm going to hope that something magically shifts. I'm going to hope that that sort of the experience of dating women kind of unlocks something in my psyche, in my affections, so that I can get married and have a have a have a normal Christian life. Yeah, that's what I wanted, and. Um, I just remember, you know, dating a, a couple of girls and, and just feeling no sexual attraction for them, feeling no real passionate romantic feelings, and um, I just realized, you know, this is this is no way to live. I'm I'm trying to kind of engineer my own happiness. I'm trying to keep all this buried inside, keep all this a secret, and just hope and pray that none of the people who love me most will ever find out about it. And it, it, it finally just hit me. I mean, that, that's a that's a really crummy way to live. You know, it's it's you're you're spending so much of your emotional and spiritual energy trying to keep a big part of yourself hidden. That's not the way to health. And I, I remember a kind of turning point of sitting down to lunch in college with a friend of mine, who I I thought I knew her quite well, but she said, you know, Wes, there's something you you don't know about me. I've I've been battling really serious depression for a number of months now. And I, I said, no, I didn't know that. And she said, well, you didn't know it because I was trying my best to keep it a secret. And I didn't want to tell anybody. And she said, it finally came to me that I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to cope with my depression by just ignoring it, just stuffing it away. And she said, ignoring is not the path to redeeming. And I didn't, I didn't say anything to her at that moment, but I, I left that lunch thinking, wow, I think, I think that may have been the voice of God. <laughs> you know, I think, I think, I think that word is for me that I've been trying to cope with my sexuality by ignoring, burying, and that's not the path to redemption. So it was really from there that that moment I think of as a kind of turning point. Um, and I just I started to say to myself, you know, you've got to find someone, at least one other person, to talk with, uh, because this is this is not healthy uh, the way I'm going on. So I I I thought, you know, who can who can I talk to? So um, I you know Wheaton is a Christian college, and so the professors talk very openly about their Christian faith in in the classroom. And there was this one professor I had, and he was a he was a physically disabled man, and he sort of a depressive personality, you know, just by 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 personality. And um, he was very open in class about the fact that he said, you know, there are times where my life has seemed so dark that the only thing I've been able to do is just scream to the Holy Spirit to hold on to me. And I remember thinking, wow, that's just really brutally honest, you know, to, to, to scream to the Holy Spirit. That sounds like a dark night of the soul. I, I bet this man would, would, would be someone who would understand if I were to confide in him. You know, I, be, I bet he would, he would get this from his, own, from his own experience. Not that I thought he was gay. I just thought he's someone who understands the tensions of life. And so I sent him an email. And you know how you sometimes you... you you know that you're taking a, a dramatic step and a good step, but you also are hedging your bets at the same time. So I sent an email and said, I want to meet with you, but I didn't tell him why I wanted to meet with him. And I thought, uh, you know, I can still, I could still keep that appointment and, and back out at the last minute. You know, I could still uh, say that it's about something else. So that was my, that was my idea. I'll, I'll go and meet with him. And, and if I have the courage, I'll actually tell him that, that I'm, that I'm gay. And, uh, I did. You know, I remember my mouth feeling like sawdust. It was really hard to get the words out, but I, I finally said to him, and I probably didn't say, at that time in my life, I probably didn't say I'm gay. I probably said I'm struggling with homosexuality or I'm struggling with same-sex attraction or something like this. But I, I finally blurted that out, and he just, he didn't, he didn't give any sort of counsel. He didn't give any answers. He just said, Wes, God loves you. 
And I, what I really wanted to hear him say is that somehow there's a magic solution to this and you can make everything okay. And he, he didn't do that either. You know, he just said, God loves you. And why don't we meet again next week and keep talking? And, and so, you know, that started a slow process of, of coming out. But, but I've, I've sort of, you know, in my writing now, I'll, I'll use the phrase gay Christian. You use that phrase. And, and, and basically what I mean by that is I'm, I'm a Christian. That's, that's, that's who I am. That's my identity. Um, and I just find the word gay captures a key aspect of how I live, how I'm in the world. It, it, it doesn't, you know, the way we use the word now in t- 2015, it doesn't necessarily say anything about what you're doing sexually. It's more a, a, a statement about, about what you feel. Mm-hmm. So when I say I'm gay, you know, I, al- I almost always say celibate as well so that people know how I'm living. But in terms of my orientation, my psychological orientation, who I'm attracted to, gay is, is kind of the term that captures that. It's always, you know, if, 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 I'm, if I'm drawn to someone romantically, it's a man. It's, it's, it's not a woman. So, so that's what I mean by that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, experiencing some freedom where you finally were able to openly talk about who mm. you were. Mm. But at the same time, it was the irony of of doors being shut that, yeah. that may have been open once before, especially with people who might have held prejudicial attitudes or just ignorant, just were yeah. confused, yeah. didn't know. Uh, people said, you know, I don't even know who you are, sort of. Mm. And and so, and for a lot of, so uh, guys that I know who have, who have come out and said, mm. I'm gay, normally the next step then is to continue in that freedom and to pursue and live out that lifestyle, not necessarily yeah. a flamboyant lifestyle, sure. but to, sure. to, to begin seeking yeah. out partners and Absolutely. things like that. Yep. Yep. And so you experience that freedom, and yet that decision sort of in it, and yeah. your call to celibacy. So tell us a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, I mean, like I said, I was, I was sort of from childhood. I was deeply formed as a Christian. <laughs> Um, and I think, I think, you know, on into my years of coming out and, and kind of owning up to my sexuality, I was still very much a Christian. I mean, I still just, church was the center of my life. You know, Lauren Winter talks about being a church nerd. I was totally a church nerd. You know, I, I liked going to church. You're I liked, I, li- I, li- I liked reading books about, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, uh, and so I, you know, I, from the get go, I thought, Okay, I'm, if I'm admitting I'm gay, I'm going to have to figure out what it means to be gay in the church as a Christian, because it's not really an option for me to stop being a Christian. I just couldn't imagine my life without being a Christian. So it was very much a, a process of, okay, what, is, what, is, what does the Bible say about this? What do my pastors say? Can we have this conversation? So I started meeting once a week with one of my pastors at the church I was going to, and um, you know, we just we, we opened up the Bible, we talked. And, um, you know, I knew, I mean, I knew that there were places like the Episcopal Church, right, <laughs> where I could, I could be in a same-sex partnership and it could be blessed and it could be recognized as, as a, way, a faithful way to be a Christian. And I wondered, is that, should I pursue that? You know, is that open to me? Um, and then I knew there were other Christians on the more conservative end who said, there's no way you can stay gay as a Christian. We've got to get you healed. We've got to get you changed, you know, so that you can, you can enter into a heterosexual marriage. And so the more I the more I studied, you know, I, I've already mentioned I didn't really feel like the heterosexual thing was happening for me, <laughs> and so I, I wondered, you know, is the is the partnership route is that a faithful route? And and I just have to say, I mean, we can we can have the larger biblical conversation if you guys want to in the Q and A, but just the more I studied the Bible, I found that I couldn't really 
convince myself that the more revisionist, the more liberal and progressive readings of the Bible were persuasive. They just they just didn't didn't persuade. So um, you know, take take for instance the the passage in Romans one. A lot a lot of people would say, look, what Paul's describing there is same sex relationships that are based on inequality, that are based on you know one of the partners exploiting the other partner, and that's what he's upset about. Um, he only knew of homosexuality in the context of prostitution and slavery. And so he didn't know about monogamous same-sex marriage, and, and, and that's why he's against it. And, and I really, you know, I think a big part of me wanted to be convinced of that. But the more I studied, for instance, Romans 1, it really doesn't seem that Paul, he's not, he's not talking about slavery. He's talking about creation. You know, he goes back to uh, God, God, God made the world from the beginning. Uh, he uses that. He uses all these all these uh, images and allusions to creation. And so it seemed like Paul's rationale was the reason the reason same sex partnerships are condemned is not necessarily because they're violent or exploitative or they're based on slavery. It's because they're out of step. They cut against the grain of of creation. You know, creation. God creates male and female and brings them together in in marriage, and, and that's why he's opposed to it. And so I just, I just felt, you know, if, if that's the reason why he's opposed to it, he's he, God is just as opposed to it in 2012 as he is in in, in the first century. And it's a kind of, it's a kind of um, universal statement about the meaning of marriage and the meaning of, of sex and procreation. And so, um, you know, as much as I wanted to believe that, you know, a same-sex union was was an option for me as a faithful Christian, I just couldn't persuade myself that that was true. I, and so I thought, you know, somehow or other, you know, with God's help, with the community's help, I'm going to have to figure out a way to be both gay, because I don't think I'm becoming straight, and celibate, because I think celibacy is the way to sort of be faithful to, to what I think scripture is saying on this point. Does that, does that make sense? Or, yeah, um, it, yeah. It, it um, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it does. Tell me, one of the things that, that I hear uh, recently, I was in a panel discussion and somebody mentioned this, and that is that um, that celibacy is is a calling yeah. and a gift, not necessarily a, um, just a, a place. A mandate. You, yeah, a mandate, right. So yeah. what would you, well, I mean, so some might say, you know, that's the route you want to go, that's all well and good, but yeah. how can you deny other people uh, what is part of their identity inherent to them and right. pursuing that and living that identity out sexually. Right. Well, I think, I mean, I, maybe the first thing to say is that I think people are not just kind of making up that idea. They're, they're actually getting that from Paul. <laughs> because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, you know, if you're, if, you're, um, if you're someone who is unmarried and you find yourself burning with desire, sexual desire, with passion, he says you should get married. He actually says that in First Corinthians seven. So, so it, it seems to suggest that there are certain people who are hardwired not to be celibate. You know? Seventeen-year-old boys. Yeah, that would be a good example. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, but I think I think we need to also think about. So Jesus, you know, at the beginning of Matthew nineteen, he's he's asked about divorce. What do you think about divorce? And obviously, the religious leaders are trying to trap him in some kind of you know they're getting they want to get him to say something that'll 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 be bad for his career and um he he has this very interesting thing where he says you know look Moses allowed people to write a certificate of divorce but I'm saying to you because the kingdom of God is here now in the kingdom don't get divorced you know because because God's reign means that that 
promise keeping is 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 powerful in a way that it that it could never have been under the old covenant. And so the disciples say, "Well, gosh, if that's the case, then then who who can get married? Because who who could who could get married knowing that divorce isn't an option? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's basically what they're saying." Uh, and uh, and Jesus says something very interesting in response to that. He says, "Look." Uh, not everyone can receive this saying. And I'm still wrestling with what he means. Does he mean that not everyone can receive the saying uh, of, of get married or not everyone can receive the saying that he's about to say? Either way, either way. Um, he, seems, he, he goes on to say, you know, there, there, there is such a thing as a eunuch in the kingdom of God. So not everyone's going to be married in the kingdom of God. And then he says, you know, there are eunuchs who choose it for the sake of the kingdom. There are eunuchs who voluntarily say, I want to be celibate for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, that seems a lot like Paul saying, you know, if you want to be celibate, you can choose it. If you want to be married, you can choose it. It's an option for you. And uh, but then but then Jesus doesn't stop there. He says there are certain eunuchs who have been so from birth. Now, I think, I think that is significant because I think Jesus is saying not everybody gets to choose their celibacy. Some people would really love to be married, and because of a genetic defect or a, or a, or a birth condition, they can't. Um, I mean, some, some heterosexual people would love to be married. I mean, John Stott. Think about John Stott's life. I, I was reading in his biography. He fully expected to be married. He wanted to be married. And the reason he was single until he died was not because he felt like he was especially gifted for celibacy. It was because he couldn't find the right person to marry. So, so there is such a thing as, I think, an unwilling celibate, you know, a kind of a, a, a eunuch who has been a eunuch from birth. And they wouldn't have chosen this. They would have wanted their life to be different if, if possible. But we live in a fallen world, and there are conditions that even if you don't like them, sometimes you have to embrace them. And that, I think that's how I think about myself. Is I, I would just say to those people you're talking about, like, look, I don't find celibacy easy. I'm not celibate because I feel like I'm especially good at it. Uh, uh, if I felt like marriage, same-sex marriage was an option for me, I, I would absolutely be married. But I'm, I'm celibate in that, in that eunuch from birth sort of sense that Matthew 19 talks about. I'm celibate because... I think that I was born with a condition that I view as part of the fallenness of the world. It's, it's a condition that shows that the world is broken, the world is fractured, and that's how I interpret my sexual orientation. And so I'm sort of embracing celibacy because I want to follow Jesus, but not because it's like this choice that I'm, that I'm kind of, I'm looking at two good options and I'm choosing celibacy because I like it. It's, it's not that. So, so I think I think I would just want to say to the person, you know, if we think that celibacy is always this this free choice, and that's how it should always be, I think we'll have trouble making sense of Jesus' words in Matthew 19. That there there are just certain there are certain life conditions that people are born into that 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 are part of the fallenness of the world. Yeah. Well, how do you respond to people then who say things like, "Gosh, well, is is your life that much harder?" I mean, almost a, a, a sense of you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, are you just living this really lonely yeah, life? And really yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's a perfectly valid question. I mean, I, when I when I wrote this book, there's a big long section in the middle uh, on loneliness. And, yeah, that's where I want to go. And I, um, you know, I look back at this book, and there are parts of it that are hard to read because it was very much written out of the pain of my mid twenties. <laughs> you know, all my friends were getting married, and I, I was I was very much feeling the the, the sheer 
weight of celibacy. You know, like like it looks like everybody else's life is happier than mine right now. Uh, everybody else is pairing up, and it looks great. Uh, and I was feeling kind of left out of that. Um, and I think I think um, um, I was talking with Cameron earlier today. We did a sort of podcast thing at the church, and um, I was I was telling him this story about so so N.T. Wright used to be a chaplain at at Oxford and. Students would occasionally walk into his office and they'd plop down and they'd say, I want to make an announcement. I don't believe in God anymore. And he developed this response. He would say, well, tell me what sort of God you don't believe in, because chances are I don't believe in that God either. You know, uh, uh, and then he would tell them about the Christian God. And I, I, sort of, I sort of have started saying something similar whenever people say, you know, I can't, I can't imagine you being celibate. I can't imagine that being a happy life. I can't imagine... You know, and and I will sometimes say, well, tell me what kind of celibacy you can't imagine. You know, tell tell me what seems so bad to you, because chances are I can't live that kind of celibacy either. Uh, and now let me tell you about the celibacy that I am trying to live. So so in other words, um, trying to acknowledge that yes, I mean, whenever people hear that I'm celibate, that does sound really hard. And it, and it, and and probably what you have in mind is not what I want for myself either. And so really, what I'm trying to do is. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to learn to distinguish between what our culture thinks of as singleness, which is very much about, um, I mean, think about a TV show like Sex and the City or, or Girls. You know, it's just this very lonely kind of life where you're going home to an apartment, you're eating frozen pizzas, you're you're watching reruns of the Gilmore Girls or something like this. You know, that's singleness uh, in our culture, and and I just think celibacy, as Christianity has always celebrated it, is really really different than that. Celibacy is about sort of intentionally plugging yourself into the life of the parish, the life of the church, you know, attaching yourself to families, serving families, um, becoming an aunt and uncle, becoming a godparent. Um, it's about it's about opening your home in hospitality, even if you're a single person. And our, a lot of people in our culture think it's weird for single people to be hospitable, right? You know, it's, it's, it's about, in other words, it's about not settling for that kind of American singleness life. You know, as as if that's what faithfulness looks like for for me or, or for or for another single person. And so, I don't know. I I just I I always want to say to people who I feel where they're concerned about me or they're pitying me, like you know, I I probably don't want to live what yeah. you have in mind either. Right. Yeah. Let's, I mean, there's the church is in a really bad job of ministering to unmarried people. Yeah. Especially over the age of thirty. I yeah. Mean, uh, my joke is I only have the friends that my wife gives me. Uh, and something happens when when you get married. Um, this happens more with men mm. where you, you're not as close to your single guy friends as you once were. And yeah. Even your married guy friends. Yeah. And, um, and so those who are single are sort of left right. kind of out in the fog. And yet regardless of your sexual orientation, I mean, you still have a, a, a real, I mean, human needs, like mm. intimacy, yeah. uh, being in a relationship, being in a community um, rooted in love, yeah. things like that. And, you know, admitting my own fault, uh, and I, I'm not very good at, at that. And it's mm. the irony, I look back at my own mm. life, uh, and the guys that I lived with in mm. college, I mean, we had a shared life together. Yeah. And the intimacy we shared was yeah. intense, and it was the best thing that, that had happened to me uh, in my my young age uh, yeah. before I got married. 
And then all of a sudden I think, well, I've, I've moved beyond that. Right. Uh, I, don't, I don't need that anymore. And even the societal pressure of, you know, the unfortunateness of, you know, two guys, if you walk into Cafe DuPont and there are two well-dressed guys sitting at the table having dinner on a Friday night, everyone says, they're gay. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than, they might just be friends. Right. And, and how good a thing that is. So talk right. a little bit about about that. Yeah. Well, I think you I think you really <laughs> very you just you just gave a very good diagnosis of why it can be difficult to be single in the church today and it's because um, at least at least for me. I, I mean, I don't want to assume that it's the same in every place, especially I want to acknowledge there could be differences, you know, in the Episcopal Church from my upbringing, but I I was raised Southern Baptist and it just seemed like all the sort of emphasis whenever there was a church retreat or whenever there was a special sermon series, you know, nine times out of ten it was going to be about how to have a stronger marriage or how to be a better parent. And, and you know, it makes sense, right? Because most of the church are married people with children. So you want to you kind of serve your, your main constituency, your main, your main um, part of your congregation. But, but I think what that does is it just reinforces the sense that if you're single, you know, you need to go to the singles ministry, which is all about finding you someone so that you can get into that category of of the normal, you know, Christian Christian life. And uh, I think I think I think we are. I mean, the kind of life I'm living is very much swimming against that stream, trying to say there is such a thing as a single person who intends to remain single because of a sense of call from God, and we don't just want to be treated as second class citizens. We don't want to have to just Celebrate an idolatry of the family, where all our all our emphasis is on marriage and family. We we want to say that we have a vital place in the life of the church, and I, I just think I have the New Testament on my side here. <laughs> I'm going to admit. Uh, I mean, Paul Paul in First Corinthians seven, you know, is very concerned about the importance of celibacy as a vocation, not just as a way station on the way to marriage. He says, you know, there's something about celibacy that makes you free for ministry. In the church, so he, so he's. Um, I'm I'm kind of getting off track. I think your question no, was no, no. more about <laughs> your question was about. So okay, so how do we become a community where that can happen? And um, yeah, maybe maybe I'll just share a couple stories about how this has worked for me. I I um I am someone who has recognized about myself if I don't if I don't sort of put myself out there for community and friendship, I am going to slip into that pattern of singleness as we know it in our culture, where I'm just. I'm just going home to an empty apartment. I'm I'm watching tons of movies. I'm on the PlayStation. You know, I don't I don't play PlayStation, but if I did, that would be that would be part of it. Um, uh, is that even what people play anymore? I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so I've I've sort of I've sort of said, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself out there for community and friendship and hospitality. So, um, yeah, I mean, this for me, this has looked like being willing to do things that might seem strange in my church, like like open my home and invite married people with children over to my house for dinner, you know, along with other single people. It's looked like, you know, um, not just get, being friends with other single guys so we can go to the sports bar every Friday night, but getting to be friends with married people with children so that I have, you know, intergenerational friendships, so that I can be a kind of spiritual father to people and not just a peer, you know, not just one of the bros. So I've, I've kind of looked for ways to say, even though I'm single and even though our culture would say you need to just kind of hang out with other single people until you get married, that's actually not the way I want to live as a Christian. I want to, 
I want to sort of be deeply part of the church family as much as any other person is part of the church family. And I've kind of looked for ways to do that. And, and my, and my, you know, as I've talked about my sense of my calling in those terms, my married friends and, and other, you know, older friends in the church, they have really reciprocated and they've said, Wes, we want to, we want to be that for you and we want you to be that for us. And so, um, you know, one, one of the cool things about this trip for me is my friend, my friend Jono Linebaugh, who I know is a good friend of the Advent is here and he and his wife and I became friends in graduate school. And they, they, um, you know, I remember vividly, I was, I was in my, house one night and I was washing dishes and my phone rang so I dried my hands and answered the phone and it was Jono and he said Wes you know my wife and I have really been praying and we want to ask you to be um, a godfather to our our daughter and um, you know that kind of thing means a lot to me in the church yeah. so talk about I mean the importance of I mean, whether you're married or not yeah the importance of really lifelong friendships with with other guys, yeah. I mean, it's you yeah. know, I, Lauren came home one night after she'd been out with the girls, which which happens a lot. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she made a very good. You know, I was all grumbling. You know, I don't. You know, yeah. Just well, why don't you do something about it? Why yeah. don't you call them? And you know, yeah. the reluctance of guys to be like, yeah. Hey, <laughs> you want to have a beer? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. But the hesitancy on guys' parts. Uh, yeah. When when that actually may be one of the best things for a marriage. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, I don't know how many of you may know about Louis C.K., the the comedian, but he has a show, and uh, you know he plays he plays himself in the show. So he plays the single dad who's in his 40s, and there's a great scene. I almost put this in my book, and then my editor made me take it out, so I get to mention it now <laughs> instead. But uh, um, there's a great scene where so he has this. Uh, he has this emergency in the middle of the night one night, and uh, his his other uh, um, the the guy who lives in the apartment next to him comes over and kind of helps with this emergency, and they they chat for a few minutes in the hallway, and he thinks to himself, man, you know, um, um, I've never met that guy. I live in this apartment. I've lived here for a couple of years, and I've never met my neighbor. And um, and and then the next scene, it cuts to him doing a stand-up routine in a bar, and he says, you know, so I met this guy the other night. I kind of want to be friends with him. You know, I kind of, I kind of want to, want to get to know him. He said, "But what do I do? Do I ask him out? You know, <laughs> do I, do I call him and say, hey, can we go out for pizza?" And then, you know, his routine ends with this really crass joke about, I guess the thing to do is have sex with him. You know, and he puts it much more crassly than that, of course. Uh, but I just thought, boy, how telling. You know, like he, he, he's hungry as a straight man. He's hungry for friendship. But our culture has so devalued male friendship and and made it something that's suspect that he doesn't even know how to do it you know and, and the only thing he can do is make some corny and crass joke about sex right. and so i just think that illustrates what you're talking about is that you know a lot of us know whether we're gay or straight you know a lot of us men know that we need friendship we want friendship we value friendship but we're not sure how to go about doing it and um i mean i think I guess I would just say I think the church is an ideal place to learn how to do it. Uh, if our culture, you know, has has lost some of the vocabulary of friendship, the language of friendship, it seems to me that one of the things we really believe as Christians, one of the one of the values that the church has to offer the world is we really believe in friendship. And I mean, this goes back to the the example of Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus was someone as a celibate man 
who who sought out intimacy with with other men. I mean, that's that's certainly there's more to his disciples than that, obviously, but but that's part of it, right? And um, I mean, there, this is one of the things that surprised me when I was working on my book. I did a lot of research about friendship in the history of the church. Did you know? I was surprised to know, but did you know there is a long history, even in Anglicanism, of men who were married to women, so probably straight. I mean, obviously they didn't have gay and straight as terms uh, for hundreds of years, but men who were married to women who the men came together and made vows of friendship to one another and, you know, would often serve on the battlefield together. Or And, they, and part of the vows were, you know, if one of us dies, we're going to take care of the other's wife and children. I mean, these were serious promise you know, oriented relationships. And that, that kind of blew me away because we don't have anything like that in our culture today. You know, if two men want to do that, what do we call it? We call it, they're gay. You know, it's same sex marriage. We've kind of lost this idea that, that male friendship is something really important. And so I would just say, you know, man, let's, let's recover some of this history in the church. Let's talk about this in the church and let's, let's encourage men. You don't have to be ashamed. If you're in the church and you want another close Christian male friend, don't be ashamed of that. That's something that, that our, our religion, our, our tradition has always honored. Yeah, I guess the closest thing, uh, I became blood brothers with Jeff Beatty when I was eight years old, and it required six stitches. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, he couldn't cut his own hand, so I did four. <laughs> oh, it required him to get stitches. Yeah, he got stitches. So I guess we're kind of half blood brothers. That's right. We really That's got right. some eye cutting. Um, That's right. <laughs> but his blood was all over me. Uh, so, uh, but, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, there, there, isn't, uh, there, there isn't that... Um, but I mean that—that's. I mean, someone can look at that, you know, vows of, hey, I'm going to take care of your family, and that's a beautiful thing. Right. Right. Yeah, that's really right. Well, what do you say to folks before we're going to open up for Q and A? But one last question, and this is not really a political question, but in the culture in which we live, there seem to be two dominant narratives, uh, and you're sort of a third voice mm. uh, that needs to be heard. One is not just supportive. Uh, if you can't, you you don't just have to be supportive of same-sex marriage and, and living out that lifestyle, but you have to demonstrate your support mm. and, and sort of, mm. um, and, but then there's the other extreme of being a jerk, yeah. you know, and just yeah. and really being homophobic and thinking this is the worst thing that could ever happen right. on the face of the earth. Right. And, and yet I think that you're putting forward uh, a very Christ-centered way mm. uh, of how Jesus mm. Uh, mm. would deal with it. And so how does the church find its voice uh, and minister to folks who would self-identify as gay or lesbian uh, in that third way mm. without being one or the other. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think that's a really great question and I'm, I'm probably going to say something that will be rather unsatisfying. I don't know. Um, I'll let you know. I mean, I think... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I think part of part of healthy ministry in this area is not treating homosexuality as some kind of special case. This is some kind of special category of people that we've either got to shun or hold up as some sort of moral heroes. You know, on the left, they're like, you know, just these, these moral heroes. On the right, they're these monsters, you know. And, and it seems to me that a healthy Christian view is that gay people are just like any other people. We're all sinners. We're all part of the the fallen world. We're, we're all in need of the saving grace of Jesus. And it seems to me that one of the mistakes in the conservative church is thinking we've got to have some special ministry 
just like we do with single people, right? We're going to have some special ministry that we put all the gay people in so that they can become straight, so that they can get married, so they can live this sort of normal Christian life. And then, you know, on the left, it's, it's a similar sort of thing. We, we've got we've to help gay people avoid the tension of living in a fallen world so that they can live out their sexuality, so that they can be sexually active, which is, of course, the, the summit of human self-fulfillment. And it seems to me that both of those strategies are in some ways mirror images of each other. That, that um, you know, both are sort of uncomfortable with what I think of as the, as the kind of main idea of the New Testament, which is that all of us, as forgiven sinners, as forgiven Christians, are called to live in this place that I call, with my book, Washed and Waiting. We're all washed, we're all baptized, which means that we're all standing on equal footing at the foot of the cross. We are all equally forgiven, equally part of the family of God. We don't, none of us need to hear any special message other than Jesus. He is the message. So that's the washed part. But we're all also in a place of tension where the kingdom of God is not yet here in all of its fullness. We're still waiting for what's to come. We're still waiting for the resurrection of the body. We're still waiting for our full redemption. We are not yet any of us fully redeemed. And so it seems to me that if you have that kind of idea of salvation, that kind of idea of the Christian life, that's something that it, it really stops mattering so much, whether you're bisexual or, or transgender or gay or straight. What matters is this new identity that you have as, as a washed one, a baptized one, looking forward to the second coming of Jesus, waiting for his appearing. And, and so it, you know, it frees you, I think, on the right from having to say, we've got to somehow figure out a way to make all these gay people straight. We don't have to worry about that. And it frees you on the left from saying, We've got to we've got to celebrate what the Bible would would say as part of the fallenness of the world, and, and and so in that way, I think the gospel actually allows us to have a third way. Anyway, that's what comes to mind to say. Yeah. Um, uh, one last question for me, and then we'll open it up. Um, what, what do you say? Uh, you know, let's say that uh, we um, were, were having this conversation in front of a room of folks who would identify themselves as gay and lesbian. And and what would you what would you say to them? Hmm. Um, and, and and you know some partnered, some not. Yeah. Uh, how, yeah. How would you approach that? Yeah. I mean, I think I I, I have become more and more convinced that the, that the church you know should not abandon its teaching about marriage. We we we're not at liberty to just change what Scripture teaches about marriage. So so that's that's just a given for me. We can't we can't finesse what the Bible teaches about marriage. But I think we've got to lead with repentance because sort of holding on to what the Bible says about the meaning of marriage as male and female does not mean that the church has done a good job of, pro- of, of proclaiming that teaching to the, to, the, to the gay community. In fact, I think we've done a, a very bad job in most ways. We've made gay people feel as though they're especially sinful. They're, they're a lot worse than other people. Um, they are, they're not really liked. You know, there's this whole thing called the ick factor that that uh, that you know leads a lot of Christians to just shun gay people. We don't 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 really want gay people in our church. So I think there's got to be some repentance from that. We've got to say, you know, look, we're we're, we're we, we we want the freedom to teach what we believe the Bible says. You know, we we're, we want to be equal opportunity offenders. We're not going to single you out for special condemnation. We're going to talk about greed and and every other sin, pride, you know, arrogance, everything else. Um, so we want we we want to keep teaching the Bible, but we also want to repent for the way we have taught the Bible, which has been judgmental. It's it's been you know we have we have perpetuated lies about the gay community. We have 
you know, the evangelicalism that I grew up in really had a lot of stereotypes of gay people and that they promote it as, as, you know, part of, part of common knowledge. And I think that's just got to be repented of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would want to, I would want to just say, you know, please, please let us talk to you about Jesus because Jesus is, is not like us. He, he, he is someone who had love for sinners. He is someone who, who, who wants to bring forgiveness, wants to bring new life. And he's for you just as much as he's for anyone else. I mean, that, that's, that's what I would want to say. So really, I mean, it's not treating them as other. Yeah. But everybody in the same boat. That's right. That's right. All right. Open it up to uh, any questions. All that? Okay. All right. Uh, Matt Schneider, what do you want? <laughs> Thank you. Um, how has the gay community, or, and you could lump in with that also, folks who are supportive on the left, uh, responded? to your book and your message, generally speaking. How has the gay community responded to your book and your message? Almost entirely respectfully. So, um, and I think think there's a reason for that. So I, I obviously am promoting a theological stance that a lot of gay people would just find really dangerous and problematic because it, it seems to suggest that well, it does suggest, it doesn't seem, it does suggest that, that a sexually active same-sex relationship is not something that God blesses. And I think a lot of gay people just feel like that's a, that message is a, is a failure to promote justice and social equality and, and, and social progress in the church. And so I think there's, there's concern about what I'm teaching. But the fact that I, the fact that I have told my story and the fact that part of my story is of being kind of marginalized in conservative churches, I think gives me a kind of solidarity with a lot of gay people that I just find, I mean, I find sharp disagreement with my, I mean, I have gay friends, you know, who, who are, who are on, on the left side of things and, and we sharply disagree. They think I'm dead wrong and, you know, I think they're wrong as well. Uh, but there's that, there's that sense of solidarity and respect, I think as well, that I know what they've been through. They know what I've been through and, and we can we can look for ways to. I mean, we we have a lot of common ground. I mean, I mean, um, uh, lesbian and gay youth make up a huge percentage of the homeless population in this country because precisely because they're being kicked out of religious households by their parents. So this is something that I feel passionately about. I mean, I I contribute to you know homeless shelters for LGBT youth. My friends on the left feel the same way. You know, we can we can make common cause with each other on things like that and, and find solidarity. So I just I think it's important to kind of have our our theological and ethical disagreements in the context of recognizing that there's a there's a sense in which we're profoundly in the trenches together. So yeah. This may be too personal and so if you don't want to answer it, uh, get it. But um, coming from your Southern Baptist roots, how did your family and your parents take How'd your parents respond? Yeah, um, I'm probably not going to say too much about that just for the sake of their privacy. And um, I think I will say that it took me a long time to want to tell them. And I think that wasn't because I didn't feel that they loved me. I mean, they 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 were very loving. It was a very warm and and nurturing childhood. And I have a very good relationship with them to this day. 
Um, but it was it was difficult. You know, it was it was, um, and I think I think a lot of this had to do with, you know, the the kind of cultural understanding in conservative churches of why someone is gay has a lot to do with the fact that. Um, I mean, if you read a book like Bringing Up Boys by James Dobson, for instance, a lot of the idea is that the reason a young man turns out to be gay is because the father wasn't affirming enough, wasn't modeling masculinity enough, and so the son became feminized and you know developed same-sex attractions. And I think my parents, um, that was the world that they had been formed in, and so it was just very difficult to kind of have those conversations, and, and that's an ongoing thing for us. Lauren, sorry, we skipped you. Um, how do you find intimacy? How do you find intimacy? I think it's been really important to me to see that Christianity does not equate intimacy with sex. So in the modern world, if you say the word intimacy, what's the first thing you think of? Almost all of you thought of sex, right? Uh, because that's, that's just the way we use it. <laughs> but, but I think, I think we need to admit that's not a Christian. What we, what we all just thought is not Christian. Um, that's a product of where we live in, in, in the year 2015. We've equated intimacy with sex. And I think for me, it's been really important to say, even if I'm committed to living without sex, that does not mean that God's asking me to live without intimate community. So I'll, I'll just tell you maybe one anecdote. Um, I'm someone who I intentionally look for close friendships, and I, I seek those out. I seek to nurture those. I I spend way too much money on my friends. You know, I I, I buy plane tickets to go and visit friends, and <laughs> you know, I I'm very. <laughs> But, uh, you know, so recently I, I, I have, I have a couple friends that I live with. Uh, it's a married couple and we, we share a house. It's, they have, they have one level of the house and I have another level of the house and we, we have our meals together and do things together and it's very important to us. And, and we, um, uh, we have a Lutheran minister friend and, and we've recently asked her to gather with a few other friends of ours and, and just come and, and lay hands on us as a, as, as a, as a group of friends, the three of us, and pray a blessing on our friendship. And, you know, what she prayed for us was, was intimate communion, um, commitment to one another, you know, for the long haul. And I just think, you know, that's, that's really significant. And I, I think, uh, it's a kind of intimacy. It's not sexual. You know, we, we, it's not a sexual relationship, but it is intimacy. And I think that's a much more Christian way to think about what it means to be human than the way we've learned, you know, in the modern world where intimacy is just, it equals sex. The mirror image to question number one. How is how is the, the right the, the, the straight community accepted what you said? I mean, just we had the question about how yeah how how more conservative circles received what you you've written and said. Yeah, sort of sort of similarly, I think. I mean, I think I get, I feel like I get a lot of respect from from my conservative Christian friends that you know um, you're obviously they would say to me you're obviously trying to live out a Christian life that's challenging and difficult in certain ways, and we respect that. I think there has been nervousness with the fact that I am not, I'm not saying that healing is something that all gay people should pursue in the sense that uh, they can and should desire to become straight, because that's not really my message. And I think a lot of my conservative friends fear that I'm kind of making peace with brokenness, that I'm not... If I'm not actively out in therapy 
with healing prayer seeking to become heterosexual that I'm um, that I'm somehow not living into the fullness of what God wants for me. And so, again, there's been respect, but there's also been a kind of caution with with what I'm about. And, and, I, and I should maybe I should maybe mention just for the sake of being honest that a lot of my conservative friends are very uncomfortable with the fact that I use the word gay. They would rather I talk about this in terms of a struggle with temptation rather than take on a label that our culture uses in in a kind of um, identity politics sense. Yeah, I mean, just as a follow-up to that, do you, I mean, do they, what do they say about things like, you know, are, are people going to intensive therapy for greed, you know? Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pray the greed away. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I do try to have those conversations. Yeah. You know, what are the analogs right. uh, for this in other situations? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I might not ask this well, but I feel like going back to creation, a lot of people say a homosexual relationship sexually can't be, like, like reproductive and yeah. not fruitful yeah. but how do you make sex something bigger than that because you have a lot of like heterosexual couples in marriages where they intend not to have children Whew. so what do you do yeah <laughs> that's, that's great. so what do you do with and correct me if, if, I, if I butcher it but um, you know sex in our culture today is has been uh, objectified to the point where most people would not see its ultimate end being children yeah uh, even in marriage even yeah. in marriage yeah um, it seems to me that I'll, I'll start by just sketching out what I see as the lay of the land in terms of Christian discussions of this. I mean, on the one hand, you have the Catholic Church, right? And the teaching of the Catholic Church is that not just every marriage, but every sex act should be open to procreation. This is why the Catholic Church is opposed to contraception. Um, on the other extreme, I think, you have the view that, you know, Christians should be totally okay with contraceptive culture. And if you want to live in a marriage where you never want to have kids and, you know, live more of a sort of uh, jet-setting life, you know, just without without the bother of kids, that's great. That's a faithful Christian option. Those those are kind of the two extremes. I think um, I think there are other Christians who would say, look, it, it looks like from the very beginning, male and female is not just about Adam and Eve gazing into one another's eyes. It's about them being in a sense, broken open, turned outward by the blessing of having children. And so even if every sex act shouldn't be open to procreation, at least Christian marriage should be open to procreation. That's more or less where I find myself. Uh, and now I, it's easy for me to say that because I'm not married, right? And I'm not, I'm not facing the decision of having children. But I, I think I worry, and this is a much too big of a conversation, I worry about the Catholic view um, for various reasons. I won't get into those. <laughs> but I, I worry equally about the, the other extreme where marriage and romance become about just two people building a life oriented around each other, which doesn't seem very Christian to me. I mean, even think about the way Paul discusses marriage in Ephesians 5. He says marriage is an icon of Christ's love for the church. And then the very next part of his teaching is about children. So it seems as though marriage is something that is meant to it's, it's meant to be about the welcome of, of strangers. It's meant to be about community. And, and the, the first strangers you welcome are children, right? And then, and then, and then marriage is, is about, is about, you know, sort of serving the church and blessing the community. So that's kind of where I find myself, which, which means that, you know, I'm uncomfortable saying that a same-sex couple, um, who can't procreate, you know, that that, that, that could live into the Christian definition of marriage. 
Yeah, um, just kind of a little bit of a follow-up on, on talking about finding intimacy in the community, which I thought was extremely beautiful and um, very radical in our American world. Sorry. Um, are you familiar with uh, Joseph Hellman's book on the church and the family? I am, yep. That, um, I've just been reading that recently, and it seems to bring out um, the idea of brother and sister relationship as even being stronger bond than the marriage bond yes. in first century ancient world. Maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, so um, uh, familial relationships being stronger than even the church bond, but even more than that, that you know, maybe even saying that uh, the waters of baptism are thicker than blood. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I mean, uh, first thing I want to say is yes. <laughs> I, I, so so the, the book that you mentioned is, is a book called When the Church Was Family. Um, and, you know, the, the, the whole language of the New Testament is about... Um, you know, well, think for instance about Mark's Gospel, chapter ten. So Peter mentions leaving behind, um, uh, you know, the, his 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 kin, his his family, when he comes to follow Jesus. And Jesus immediately says, "When you leave your fishing nets, when you forsake your family, you gain a hundredfold new mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children and lands, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life." And and that seems to me a kind of paradigmatic text where when you come into the church you're grafted in to a new kinship network a new family and now the most important ties are your fellow believers so that so that there are even those really offensive passages in the gospels where you know Jesus is teaching and his mother and brothers show up and i mean remember what he says it's it's painful to read it he says well who are my mother and my brothers it's it's everyone who hears the will of god and does it and uh, so he's kind of redefining what's most significant. And what's most significant now is belonging to the kingdom of God, being baptized. That's your family. And, um, yeah, I, I find that really powerful. Um, and I, I think that's that's one of the reasons I have hope for myself, you know, finding real communities, because I belong to a religion where that's, <laughs> that's, that's one of the key things we believe. Victor? Uh, really enjoying your... You were in college when you the the mammal on. Yeah. What would you tell, let's say, your thirteen year old self who came to see your now thirty something year old self? Would you say, put it on now, hmm. wait? What would be your advice to a young yeah. adolescent? And what would you say to yourself if you were able to go back in time uh, hmm. and you're thirteen years old? Hmm. I think one of the things that I regret about my adolescence is so from about age you know 12 13 somewhere in there until I came out to my professor when I was about 21 or 2 so that's a good chunk of years I just spent so much and it wasn't always conscious a lot of it was subconscious but I spent so much of my energy emotionally spiritually thinking through, is what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do going to give away that I'm attracted to men? So I just had to invest so much energy in staying hidden. You know, the language we use is staying in the closet, you know? And I just look back on that and I just think, what a, what a spiritually dangerous way to live. It just trains you in the habits of secrecy. It trains you in... in um, I mean, I, I still, I think, sometimes find it hard to be totally vulnerable and honest with people, probably because, in some measure, I spent so many years practicing. 
I spent so many years practicing not being vulnerable and not being honest. And so I, I guess I would want to say to my 13-year-old self that, A, be careful who you confide in, because a lot of people in the church are not safe. I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but a lot of people in the church are very judgmental. <laughs> uh, so be careful. But but please don't stay hidden. Find find that that small circle of people you can trust and you can be honest with and you can you know they're not going to judge you. You know they're going to accept you and, and talk with them. And if, if, it, if it helps you at that point to sort of put a label gay on it, you know, don't, don't sweat that. I, I guess I would say we, we have so much pressure in our culture to label ourselves. We are so invested in this, in the church too. And I wish we could all sort of t- take a big sigh of relief and, 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 you know, chill out a bit about labels. But you know, there's a, there's a reason there's a reason labels are important to gay people, and 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 part of that is when you've been rejected by your church and you've been rejected by your parents and you've been rejected by your friends who you thought were your friends, and suddenly you go and you meet a gay community where everybody is gay, that's where you find acceptance. And so labeling yourself as gay suddenly becomes a way of finding safety. It's a way of finding solidarity with people who will accept you. And so I I guess I would just say let's keep in mind when we're I think some of us are kind of rightly alarmed about the fact that more and more young people, you know, at ages nine and ten or younger, are are labeling themselves with a sexual identity, you know, as as gay or bi or something. And a lot of us are kind of alarmed about that. You know, shouldn't they shouldn't they wait to do that? But let's just think about, you know, for for a lot of people in our world, choosing one of those labels is a way of finding acceptance. It's a way of finding community. And let's not be too quick to kind of condemn that, even though we're we're concerned about, you know, how to how to best protect and nurture our children. Um, you mentioned that you have a lot of friends that think you're dead wrong, and vice versa, and not going to change mine. Yeah, um, I'm I'm probably one of those people. Yeah. Honestly. Um, so where do you see those of us who are on opposite sides of this issue but have one thing in common, and that's Christ? Yeah. Where do you see us coming together if we're not ever going to change one another's mind? Yeah. And where's where's unity if there's disagreements over this this issue? Especially I guess it's such so polarizing, right? Yeah, and I guess right. it's, it's worth asking the question: How important an issue is this? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe I can talk about. Um, and he he may hear this recording, and, and great if so, because he's a good friend of mine. But Justin Lee is a friend of mine. Justin Lee is the director of the Gay Christian Network. For those of you who don't know him, and Justin has a very similar story to me. He was raised Southern Baptist in um, North Carolina, I believe. And kind of uh, came out uh, later, later in in in, um, in life, and um, you know Justin is someone who he shares baptism with me in the triune name, and so that's a profound solidarity. You know we're 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 both we're both baptized in the in the triune name, um, but Justin has an argument in his book where he says, look, if you read Romans 14, there was this massive dispute in the church in Rome about about food issues, and 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 people were kind of quarreling with each other, and they were dividing from each other. And Paul's counsel is, don't quarrel over opinions, but welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you. So so in other words, don't try to change each other's mind, just welcome one another. And Justin says, look, couldn't that be a paradigm for how we live together with disagreement? Couldn't we say this issue of homosexuality is similar to the food? Debate in Romans 14. I will admit, um, and I should say, I'm not. I'm not ordained. I'm not speaking on behalf of any church here. I'm just speaking as a 
as a as a theologian, I suppose, <laughs> and as a gay Christian. I will admit that I struggle with that interpretation. And the reason is this. I think that when you look at the way the New Testament talks about sex, it's different than the way the New Testament talks about food disputes. So with, with food disputes or other issues where um, the New Testament says we can sort of welcome one another and agree to disagree, as it were, it doesn't say that about sexual issues. So think think about 1 Corinthians 6. I mean, Paul says your your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, therefore you've got to take sex really seriously. Um, you know, there there are warnings of spiritual danger attached to sex. So I I find myself living in this interesting tension with my friend Justin, where I would want to say, Justin, I know that we are both. I know that we both believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. He rose from the dead. We've both been baptized in the triune name. And therefore, I have to treat you as a brother. But I, I'm treating you as a brother who I think is wrong about something really significant, something more significant than food issues. And I don't, I don't know quite what that means. I mean, it might actually come to more of a head if Justin and I were trying to be members of the same church, and we're not, you know. Um, so I, I find myself living with this very interesting tension where I want to, I mean, I want, I want as much friendship with Justin as we can have. I want, I want to view him as my brother in Christ. And I also want to be able to say to him, Justin, I think you're wrong. And I want to try to persuade you to read the Bible differently. And I think he feels the same way toward me. So I think what we're committed to is talking and, and remaining friends and finding a way to, to talk. Now, I admit, um, this would be a whole lot harder if I was the, if I was a priest and I had to decide, you know, can Justin be ordained in my church? Can Justin, you know, uh, serve communion in my church? You know, th- those are issues that I don't have to deal with because I'm I'm not in that position. But those are, those are harder. <laughs> I'm going to defer to Andrew, <laughs> but hopefully that gives you some sense of how I think about the issues. Yeah. Yeah. Would you agree with the, uh, the most recent, probably the next in the last five to ten years? Um, some of the more prominent pastors that have written books uh, where they tackle the subject of same-sex attraction, where they basically come all to the same conclusion saying that, and this is for all of us, but they're talking about those with same-sex attraction that were, they're called to heterosexuality, but they're not called to heterosexuality, but they're called to holiness, mm. which is, that, that kind of, would that describe your walk? It seems like. Yeah, so the response of the church to folks and, and calling them to, to a life of, well, celibacy, it sounds, and mm. Uh, mm. rather than rather than heterosexuality. Right. I would say that. And, um, you know, I'll just mention this. this, this I'll try to make this, you know, as, as non-technical as possible. But I, I've, I've been really kind of influenced by this theologian named Steve Holmes. He's a Baptist theologian in the U.K., um, and Steve, Steve just is pointing out, he's reminding all of us what we should know, but a lot of us forget, is that this whole way of talking about gay and straight people, or homosexuals and heterosexuals, is a really new way of speaking about human beings. It, it's, it's only a couple hundred years old. And, um, and Steve just says, you know, the reason we can't make it a goal for everyone to be heterosexual, the reason we can't make that the goal of the Christian life, is because heterosexuality is this pretty recent way of categorizing people, and a lot of it is, frankly, really unchristian. I mean, if you if you asked a lot of if you polled people and said, "What does it mean to be heterosexual?" you would get all kinds of cultural understandings of what it means to be a man or a woman, you know, what it means to be masculine or feminine that have really nothing to do with Christianity. 
And so to sort of set up a, a, a discipleship program where you're trying to disciple people into heterosexuality is just, that's the wrong way to go about it. What, we, what we're all called to is to sort of unlearn the ways that we've embraced cultural understandings of sexuality and we're called to, to become Christ-like. And, and Christ was not homosexual. He wasn't heterosexual. He was, he was, he was, he was, he was, he was a man, a true, a true human being for others. And, and I think if you're, if you're married, you're going to be, you're going to be sort of unlearning, you know, certain, certain habits of heterosexuality that have nothing to do with Christ. If you're celibate, you may be unlearning certain habits of heterosexuality or homosexuality that have nothing to do with Christ. And, but the, but the goal is conformity to Christ, not, not conformity to some homosexual ideal or some heterosexual ideal. It's, it's, it's a life of love and self-giving in imitation of Christ. You know, and that's why I use the term those that have same-sex attraction versus gay or straight. I yeah. Our, our identity should not be that I'm heterosexual or somebody else is homosexual, but that our identity is in Christ. Yeah. And some people same-sex attraction, and some, you know, and we're yeah. all sinners, even if we're heterosexual with, in, a, in a marriage, we're all sexual sinners. So I think it's wrong for, and, and this is kind of what you're talking about, the more conservative church being judgmental, I think that's where it comes in, where those that are heterosexual and they're maybe in a marriage and they look down on homosexuals, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, throw the first stone, you know, yeah. we're all we're all sexual. Right. Presley, is, is your message, or have you, I know you're, most of your graduates, well, there's a lot of singles. Is your message spoken to heterosexual singles being celibate until they are married? That's right. Yeah, I mean, that's is, right. Do you have that crossover message, or do you pursue that message to the single heterosexual? Yeah, I mean, I, th- yeah, that uh, t- t- is this message also to those who are uh, single and heterosexual, and and talk about, I mean, in our culture, the fact that we have separated, and we've actually even begin to type out different kinds of sexual activity, right. where there are sort of grades of this is really <laughs> bad, right? But like you know. They're in their 20s, right. they're dating, right. you know. I <laughs> yeah. mean, the number yeah. of people in here, I'm sure, that have been confronted with. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Mike Hill told a story publicly about, uh, when he was here last week, the Bishop of Bristol, that his daughter said, I'm bringing two friends home for the holidays with me, and they live together. And she said, so I don't want you to pull this old-fashioned stuff. And, uh, and I just thought... Can you imagine the gall of walking into the bishop's house and being like, "I'm shacking up, uh, whether you like it or not"? Uh, but, yeah. but that attitude yeah. of, of sort of yeah. that, that sex outside of marriage is—it's yeah. it's normal. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, even the hardness of Christian guys looking at Christian girls saying, you know, like, "What do you mean we're not going to mess around?" Right. Right. What's wrong with it? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think one of the things this whole debate about homosexuality that we're having in the church right now has done is it has exposed all the ways that all of us are compromised sexually. You know, like and 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 so what it, what it you know we we a lot of a lot of Christians have wanted to sort of say, well, we're going to draw the line at homosexuality. We can at least all agree that that's wrong. But what that turns into is it turns into a double standard where we're sort of offloading our guilt onto gay people 
so that we can feel better about ourselves morally, sexually. And it seems to me that the message of Christianity is every bit as hard, if not harder, you know, for, for, for heterosexual people. I mean, the gospel, or the, the, the demand of God, the holiness of God, cuts against the grain of all of our lives. Um, um, most of all heterosexual people, because that's who most of the people are in the church, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, it just seems to me that, that um, you know, I don't know if you guys know the name Gordon Hugenberger. He's the pastor of Park Street Church in Boston. He's a, he's a um, professor at Gordon-Conwell, but he's a pastor of Park Street Church. And he, he likes to say that in his, in his pulpit ministry, in his preaching ministry, he wants to be an equal opportunity offender. Uh, he wants to offend everybody under that church building uh, with their sin so that he can then preach the gospel of grace. So he doesn't want a homosexual person walking in to feel singled out as though they're some especially egregious sinner. And he doesn't want a heterosexual person going out of the door thinking, I'm okay, because I'm at least not a homosexual. You know, I'm, I, he, he wants everybody to, to leave offended. And that just seems to me really, really... But it seems to me that's, that's, very, that's very much the way we ought to think about... Um, you know, we, Jesus, Jesus has the harshest words for people who want to wag the finger at someone else. And he's constantly saying, look back at yourself, look back at yourself, look back at yourself. You're a sinner. That's what you need to be confronted with. And I think that, you know, insofar as a lot of us in the church want to condemn homosexuals, the, the, the message of Christianity pushes it back on us. You know, what, where is our sin? And it should engender compassion That's right. toward other people. That's right. Yeah. Lauren, I'm going to let you go one more time. Yeah, I'm, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm married to him, so I get a question. Um, but, I, I mean, how do you... I know this isn't a very clear question, but I feel it's really hard as a Christian to talk about homosexuality as a sin. Hmm. And, and I don't, not that that comes up, but I feel like if you even put it in that category, you kind of lose any sort of dialogue from the beginning. Yeah. And do you feel that way, or do you feel like people who, gay Christians on the other side of the issue, as you acknowledge it as a sin, or, or no? I mean, where do you see in your experience? Yeah, so the question is, you know, how do you, you know, how do you have the conversation? Right. Really? And if you want to be. Yeah, I I think this is one of the ways in which I'm I'm in a different spot than a lot of people in the room because I am so publicly known as the guy who's gay and celibate. So I I mean, if anybody ever wants to talk to me about homosexuality, I'm in the position where they already know what I think, or at least they know a good chunk of what I think. And I I mean, I have friends who have the same kind of conservative theological convictions that I have who would say, Wes, we would, we would never want to lead with, you know, what, what we believe or what you believe when we're in a conversation with someone who's just trying to figure out what is Christianity all about. Because as soon as you lead with, you know, oh, we don't do same-sex marriage or, or we, you know, the conversation is over for a lot of people. So, so you've, you've got to look for a way to sort of keep the door open for conversation so that you can explain enough of what Christians believe about God and Christ and sin and, and forgiveness and salvation that, that the space is there for conversation because this is kind of a deal breaker. So I, I you know, um, if I hadn't written my book, if I wasn't known publicly as the celibate gay guy, I would, I would never want to sort of show my hand with my convictions on this in, in a, in a first conversation, you know, with, with someone who's not a Christian. Um, yeah. So I don't know if anybody has strategies 
for doing that. I would love time, to hear I mean, them. You, you, yeah. don't want, you, want, you don't want the old bait and switch. No, that's right. Yeah. You don't want to be manipulative. In response to your question, you were born that way. It is not any sin that you have right. being born that way. Right. Okay? I, I'm just saying that you, you made a decision as a, an adult not to physically practice yeah. because of your belief in the Bible. But it was not a sin the way you were created in your mother's womb. Mm. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. that isn't simple. Yeah, so uh, the question is, um, is is homosexuality in and of itself intrinsically sinful or disordered as compared to heterosexuality? Yeah, yeah. This is where I mean, I think I think traditional Christianity has a pretty strange view of sin. <laughs> so if you if you if you if you were to go into a bar and poll people, what is sin? I think people would start talking about actions. They'd start talking about, you know, things people do. That's what sin is. And traditional Christianity says no. It's actually far worse than that. <laughs> it's something we are before it's something we do. It's something we're born with. It's like a it's like a birth defect that you're that you're saddled with. You didn't go looking for it. And so I think I would just say every one of us, every single person in this room is born in a state that is fallen from what God wanted us to be in the beginning. I mean, if, 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 if there were no sin and death in the world, we would all be very different than we are. We would be, we would, we would be beholding God and having, having a deep relationship with God, and we, we're cut off from that. Um, and so I guess I would just say, I think, I think, yes, you're absolutely right. I didn't go looking to be gay. It just, it just happened to me. But I think that's because I was born into... A fallen world, and you didn't go. People don't go looking to be straight, and the reason your straight sexuality is is broken and bent in its own way, just like my homosexual orientation is bent in its own way. The reason all of us are bent sexually is because none of us got to choose how we were born. We were all born in sin and, and in a fallen world. So that's that's the way I think about it. Yeah, somebody came in uh, not that long ago and, and asked me, "Do you think that homosexuality is is disordered?" And I said, "Yes." In the same way, my sexuality yeah. is disordered. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's right. Tommy, um, plus I appreciate everything you've said. Um, my question is, you know, we've been having a conversation here tonight about the way that we view um, this issue within the confines of the church. Yeah, and I think it's very important to sort of distinguish that between, the, you know, what is the church's view within the church. And what is sort of the view in civil society generally? Yeah. yeah. And my question is, what is your view as far as how the church should engage that sort of second issue of you know homosexual you know, same-sex marriage in the context of just civil society? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about kingdoms. Um, <laughs> so uh, the question is, you know, what is the church's role in engaging the culture over the the issues like? Uh, well, just say, say same-sex marriage. That, that's that's the one that's presenting right now. Yeah. 
Yeah. How should the church approach that? Well, I'm going to be really dissatisfying here because I, I'm going to I'm going to admit that I don't know. <laughs> I, I can tell you how I how I think through my ignorance, <laughs> how I think through why I don't know. Um, so on the one hand, I have the voice of someone like Paul Griffiths in my head. Paul Griffiths is a is a, a theologian at Duke Divinity School, and he's a Roman Catholic. And um, Griffiths would say, "We have so failed as Christians to." publicly explain Christianity and the Christian worldview, that we have a colossal failure on the part of our society and in the United States to even understand the basics of the Christian faith. And so why would we expect that, that, um, you know, unbelievers, uh, non-Christians would ever want to embrace a Christian view of marriage? So why don't we, so he wrote an article in Commonweal magazine called Legalized Same-Sex Marriage. And he says that as a, as a pretty conservative Catholic. So I read something like that and I think, boy, that makes a lot of sense to me. On the other hand, I have the voice of, of Robbie George in my head. Robbie George is, is a, is an attorney, a law professor at Princeton University. And, and, um, he, he has been on the crusade to sort of say that we ought to vote against same-sex marriage in the public square. And, and I have his voice in my head because he would say, look, um, the definition of marriage as male and female is not uniquely Christian. It's something Muslims believe. It's something that's there in the Jewish scriptures. It's something that basically the world's monotheistic religions think is part of what we call natural revelation. It's not part of special revelation. It's not part of, of God's God, what God has to reveal. It's built into the fabric of creation. And so therefore, it's something that's good for everybody, whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever. It's good for you to have the definition of marriage upheld as male and female. So he would say it's part of working for the common good of society for Christians to try to uphold traditional marriage. It's, it, it should have nothing to do with your Christian you know, evangelistic sense. It should have everything to do with your sense of it's, it's better for society. It's better for children if, if marriage um, remains male and female. So, so I have Griffiths and George in my head, and I, I, I admit I don't know. I have not had to vote on this issue. So it hasn't, um, you know, I haven't had to vote in Pennsylvania on this, and I, I, I don't know how I would vote. I, I, I feel very torn. So someone who's smarter than me can, can maybe speak to that, Andrew. <laughs> um, Spoken like a true American. You should go into politics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd like just hold on, let's see if there's anyone else, and we'll come back around. Okay. Yeah, I'd just like to bounce off of that question and move to something a little different. Um, you know, like in the state of Alabama, you can be fired just for being gay. There's no protection yeah. specifically for sexual yeah. orientation. Yeah. Um, you know, some more liberal cities and other states have put those sorts of protections in, and yeah. um, more often than not, conservative churches uh, campaign against yeah. those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, on an issue like that, rather than marriage, do you see that as something that the church should speak up on? on? Like for even you, as a celibate gay person, that would apply to you just as much as me, someone who right. um, believes this thing. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's sort of one. Uh, you're feeling on including sexual orientation in anti-discrimination laws, uh, but also two. I mean, the, the big issue of, of, of treating that as a separate class. Mm. Mm. Well, I, I should maybe say this is all above my pay grade. I'm a lowly theologian, but uh, um, I, I... You're not really doing a lot for yourself to get invited back. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I obviously, as a gay man myself, I, I, I worry about discrimination. I mean, I, I could tell you a, a painful story about um, 
uh, a time that a, a church, um, they had had me preach, and then once they found out I was gay, they actually removed the audio recordings of my sermon from the website. So discrimination exists, and it's dangerous, and it, it's harmful to people like me and you. And I think I think there's got to be some way of protecting that. I, I will admit, I mean, I, so I'm employed at a Christian institution, and part of our... Part of our charter as a seminary is we believe marriage is between a man and a woman. And I I worry about legislation that would make it difficult for us to hang on to that charter. So I want to I want to believe that I can't be fired from my institution for being gay, but I also want my institution to be able to to, to continue to believe and teach what it does about marriage. So if there if there are protections for conscience in terms of religious liberty, built into anti-discrimination legislation, that to me would be ideal. But um, but it really is above my pay grade. I, I actually don't know the details of this kind of legislation. So that the, 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 those are just my concerns. Yeah. Let me ask you that as well. What you say to us on a congregational level, that we could take steps to minimize the social, or actually take away the social injustice. Hmm. So what, what can we do at a congregational level to, to minimize so the social injustice of it. I I would I would say, in my experience, um, a lot of a lot of unnecessary discriminatory views tend to attach themselves to traditional views on marriage. So it seems to me that what we're obligated to believe by Scripture is that marriage is between a man and a woman, and therefore. To be in an, in a sexually active same-sex partnership is to, is to go against the grain of that. That's what we're given in scripture. A lot of other things that people want to, you know, um, discriminate against gay people for, they don't like their mannerisms or, or they want to, they want to sort of mandate certain kinds of, of therapy or, or, all of those are what I view as accretions that are that are not part of what we have to believe according to Scripture. So they're 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 things that we've inherited from people like Sigmund Freud. They're people that we things that we've inherited from prejudices that are part of the culture, and they've sort of attached themselves to conservative convictions. And I think we've got to pull those apart and say, look, it is not part of Christian faith to make a gay person feel bad for the way that they dress or the way that they you know, inhabit the world in terms of their personality, their mannerisms. Like what we're what we're given is to teach about scripture and to teach about the definition of marriage. And and we've got to we've got to resolutely look for all the ways that we are behaving, you know, with bigotry towards gay people, uh, in, in whatever in whatever form that may take. So um, I mean we could we could maybe talk about concrete scenarios, but I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that one yeah. of the things that we see is there's a complete lack of generosity yeah. uh, in in the debate that's happening. Uh, so, I mean, you have on the one hand people who are just being mean uh, yeah. and, and being jerks and um, um, homophobic, but on the other hand, you also have situations like, you know, the the company that was asked to bake a cake for a lesbian wedding, yeah. uh, and I don't know, actually they did not refuse. Um, to bake the cake, they just refused to decorate it in the fashion that they wanted it to be decorated mm-hmm. in. And of course, uh, they lost. They lost that right. lawsuit. Right. Uh, there was a uh, an inn recently that that refused to give um, a room to an unmarried couple, mm. two men. Uh, but they they said we'll give you a room with two beds. Yeah. Um, which. Um, if you've been married for any amount of time, it's like awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like win-win. Uh, 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 
but they were so angry about it, they sued and uh, they sued and and lost. And so, I, I mean, I I would hope mm. that there is is some generosity yeah. uh, on both sides of the issue. Um, yeah. Well, one of the there's there's a guy named Matthew Lee Anderson who's a kind of young Christian commentator, and and he 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 did a piece recently, and it it was just can there be mercy in the homosexuality debates? Mm. Um, there has not been from the right, a lot of the time toward toward the left, and now that the left, I mean the the, the left is 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 uh, you know they're in the cultural ascendancy. I mean that same sex marriage is soon going to be legal in 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 our country in all in all states. I mean that's just that's just where we are, and the question is can there be mercy from the victors for 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 those who've lost the culture war? Um, I don't know. I mean we we haven't done a great job modeling it as the church. We've spent a lot of years being bigoted toward gay people. It won't be any surprise I, to me if the victors in the culture war are not too excited about showing mercy to, to you know, conservative churches. I'm sorry to end on that dour note. <laughs> yeah, um, you identify yourself as a theologian, so from a theological standpoint, yeah. um, a lot of the language that you use reminds me of uh, like anonymous, addiction anonymous type um, meaning a la- language. They identify themselves as alcoholics. However, in that structure, they have a constant struggle against their alcoholism. And I know that I see that with like the celibacy that you're promoting for yourself and the holiness. My question is, in your struggle against that, does it go beyond action? Do you find yourself struggling against thoughts as well? Like we would tell someone who would maybe struggle with lust or something like that. Yeah, so I mean, it is... um is homosexual orientation uh, any any different, and are there any parallels to things like alcoholism? Mm. Mm. So, uh, you know, we 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 talk about in, in 2015 in our culture, we talk about being gay. Now, that is a really big umbrella term that comprises a lot of different human experiences underneath it. Um, one of those experiences is sex, gay sex. Um, one of those experiences is, you know, finding certain members of the same sex really attractive, talking about that, fantasizing about that. Another set of experiences under the gay, the term gay, I think would be a kind of what I would call a, a sort of sensibility, a, a sensitivity, a heightened, a heightened sensitivity for same sex closeness, emotionally, um, relationally, and that. And that, I think, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with sex. I mean, it's not totally distinct, but it, but it's not it's not about sort of mentally undressing someone, fantasizing about someone lustfully. It's about having this. I'm finding it hard to describe, but I I, I think I think a lot of straight people, I'm told, <laughs> have the experience of of just being drawn to someone of the opposite sex, being being kind of more alive in a conversation because that person is of the opposite sex. And it's not that they're actively lusting. It's not that they're mentally undressing that person. It's, it's, that, they're, it's that there's that spark, there's that chemistry. I, a lot of gay people would say, that's how I feel for someone of the same sex. And I would, I would just say, I don't, I mean, just being completely honest, I don't find myself, I don't find myself like repenting of that or fighting against that. I, I think, I think, Sort of nurturing same-sex friendship and and closeness is something that 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 Christianity likes. It it, it celebrates it. And so, I wanna I wanna 
I want to seek as a Christian, as, as someone who wants to follow Jesus, I want to seek to, to, you know, not, not harbor lust. I mean, that's a lifelong battle, right? None of us is ever going to do that perfectly. But I, I want to, I want to be someone who practices custodianship of my eyes. You know, Job, Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes. I don't want, I, want, I don't want to be someone who's just lusting. But I don't think being gay is reducible to that experience of lust. I don't think it's reducible to the experience of having sex. I think it's about a broader sensibility or way of being in the world. And, and therefore, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not just fighting against that all the time. So I don't know if that, that clarifies. But, um, yeah, I mean, to a degree, I mean, I think you see it with David in Second Samuel 1 when he talks about his relationship with Jonathan. I mean, I think, yeah. I think that's a really good parallel for some of the things you're talking about. Absolutely. I mean, with intimacy, I mean, that can exist between anyone. That's right. Uh, my, and you did answer my question. I think it has to do with the lustful aspect. I think it's very clear in yeah. Scripture. And by the way, I really appreciate your stance of standing underneath Scripture and letting scripture and your ability to interpret it kind of inform your life and your life decisions. I think that's a very brave way to go about life, especially with your convictions. Thanks. Well, um, we've gone a little bit over, but Wes, I want to give you the last word. Anything else you want to say? I I think I would want to leave you with the sense that um, your witness as a church on this very contentious issue, um, it doesn't it, it doesn't end with sort of your stance on marriage, quote unquote. You know, it, 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 the, the, way to, the way to bear Christian witness in our world to, to gay people and, and, and to the gay community is to stand for things like we really believe in same-sex closeness. We believe in friendship. We believe in community. We believe in hospitality. That's just as much a part of your witness on this whole issue as sort of having the right definition in your in your canons about what marriage is, that it's between a man and a woman. And I, so I would just say, I think part of what I view as my calling is to expand the imagination of parishes and churches to say, you know, we can we can live into a vision of friendship that that really speaks to this issue of homosexuality in our culture that doesn't end with you know, here's here's chapter and verse for Genesis one, male and female, you know, in the image of God. That's it. That's what we believe. You know, no, no, that's not where it ends. It ends with with this with this vision of of intimacy between those who are single and married, those who are gay and straight, those who are um, chaste, and those who are wondering if they can be chaste or if they should be chaste. I mean, all of us are welcome at the foot of the cross, and we're all called to a life in which Christ has poured his love out to us and we can pour love out to one another in the in the body of Christ. So, thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, where we are right, that you would strengthen us. Where we are in error, that you would correct us. That in all things, thy will be done. But above all, Lord, um, we pray that you would work in our lives for our good, but above all, for your great glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.